most people, what I find in my research, don't achieve their dreams because they don't have the skills to deal with the strong emotions associated with the journey. Yeah. The disappointment, the frustration, the overwhelm, the fear, etc. You're listening to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast. Hello, wonderful listeners, and welcome to episode 18 of the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast slash show. I'm your host, Brittany Nicole. I have waited for months anticipating recording and releasing this episode for you guys to watch and listen to. Mark Brackett, who I will be interviewing for this episode, is the director for the Center for Emotional Intelligence at Yale University. And Dr. Mark Brackett has been in very high demand since I believe April of 2020 when his book was endorsed by Brene Brown and she had him on her podcast. So when I tell you getting him on this show was like pulling teeth and there was a constant back and forth with emails with his assistant. So there's been a lot of labor put into getting Mark onto this show and I'm so fortunate to have him. If you are watching this recording, I will show you right here is the book that he wrote entitled Permission to Fill. For those of you who are listening, it is Permission to Fill. You can get that on Amazon. It's the power of emotional intelligence to achieve well-being and success. Typically, I don't have to read a script for someone's bio, but I'm going to do that for Mark because there's a lot going on. There's a lot that he's doing, and I want to make sure that I don't leave anything out. So Dr. Mark Brackett earned his PhD in psychology from the University of New Hampshire and is now a research psychologist and the founding director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and professor in the Child Study Center at Yale University. Mark's research focuses on the role of emotional intelligence in learning, decision-making, relationship quality, and mental health, the measurement of emotional intelligence, best practices for bringing emotional intelligence into schools and organizations, and the influence of emotional intelligence training on student and education effectiveness bullying prevention, and school climate. Mark is also the lead developer of Ruler, which is an evidence-based approach to social-emotional learning that has been approved by CASEL, or CASEL, which is the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Like I said, there's a lot going on. Mark's doing a lot. He has been in the field of emotional intelligence now or studying it for about 25 years, I believe, formally. But he started at a very young age working with his uncle Marvin, which he will talk about more in this discussion. Uh, and really his uncle Marvin was his hero and the catalyst for his change and becoming the person he is today and having that permission to feel heard. Before we move in to the conversation with Mark Brackett, there are two things that I want to share with you. And that is I am launching this March, March 2nd, 2021, 
a program entitled Eliminating the EQ Deficiency. So if you are looking to build your skills, develop your emotional intelligence, be a more effective communicator, uh, more self-confident, have more compassion for yourself, then this may be the program for you. Right now I'm offering an early bird special, which ends February 10th, 2021. If you are listening to this podcast episode after February 10th, 2021, but you are a avid listener of this podcast, send me a direct message, which I will put in the description along with the link to the program for you to sign up if you are interested. So the second thing that I want to share with you is I am now on Clubhouse. My username is at BNCS underscore 23. I'll put that in the description below as well. And we are going to start moving forward doing a live recording on Clubhouse of the podcast. So you will kind of get the behind the scenes sneak peek and be able to listen to the podcast weeks, sometimes months before it is even released on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast slash show. Make sure that you log in if you have Clubhouse and follow me there for these awesome discussions with our guests, as well as additional discussions on the topic of emotional intelligence. All right, that is my summary of news and announcements. Without further ado, here is the conversation with Dr. Mark Brackett. Hey, Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast slash show. I'm going to let you uh, tell everyone, if they don't already know who you are, who you are. Yeah, well, who am I is a big question there. Um, so I am Mark, and um, I'm a 51-year-old psychologist who really has a very narrow focus, you know, which is, you know, I'm on this mission to help people understand that emotions matter and that how they feel drives all things that are important in life and that how we can learn to use our emotions wisely is what's behind our well-being, our success, our healthy relationships and so on. So I definitely obviously want to talk about your book, Permission to Fill. But before we do that, so as we're recording this, it's January 7th, 2021. And yesterday, the past couple of days, actually, there have been a ton of emotions, usually very negative toxic emotions, um, a lot of helplessness and um, just so many feelings around the situation of what's going on in Mm. the world, but specifically our nation right now, as we're in the U.S. Um, And I want to talk about the importance of being emotionally intelligent and how we can see that a lack of emotional intelligence was really being reflected right now. Um, how are you feeling right now about this situation and what do you see as a potential solution, if any, to kind of help mend our nation the way we are at this point? Well, I think, you know, the hardest part is that there's no quick fix. 
Right. And that we're all desperate for that right now. At least I am. You know, I'm desperate for compassion. I'm desperate for kindness. I'm desperate for better perspective taking skills. I'm desperate for a sense of safety and security and calmness. Um, and so we can find that within ourselves. And if we have skills and strategies, we can find that with our loved ones and the people that we are um, surrounded by. Um, but as a nation or as a country, as a world, I think that, you know, we've got just a tremendous amount of work to do. And I just actually did a post this morning on social media, which is like, throw away the toolkits, throw away, you know, the workshops enough with the, you know, the activity of the week, because um, it's not going to get us anywhere. And we know that it hasn't gotten us anywhere, but yet we continue to do it. Yeah. And because it's easy and we like easy. We don't like effort, effort, you know, takes too much time. Effort makes us uncomfortable. And so, yeah, I just think that we have to understand that we need to build this into the immune system of our nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, actually, a year ago today, I started writing my book, The EQ Deficiency. Uh -huh. and one of the chapters is called, There's No Quick Fix. Right. And, and that's so frustrating being someone who is a coach and a trainer and an advocate for emotional intelligence. So many companies, as soon as they want me to come in for a lunch and learn, and I said, well, are you expecting me to solve a problem with this? And they're like, yeah, we really need to, that's not going to fix it. It's going to inform you, but information is not transformation. Right. And I think too, with the state that we're in with being so stressed and overwhelmed, where do we find the mental space to be still, be present and put that energy that most of us don't have into developing this skill, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I love what you're doing in the school systems, working with children that don't have all these well, I would say don't have all these stressors, but now with social media, we're finding that kids have a lot of stressors these days with, you know, expectations that they feel this pressure from social media. But where, where do you think people can start? Because reading a book, it, again, it gives you that information, but what is something that's applicable that we can easily practice? That's not just great in theory. Well, I think, you know, getting started with books is actually quite helpful because you can sit with it. You know, if you read it really, you know, superficially, then no, you know, it's not going to be helpful. But if you sit with it and reflect on it, then I think it can be very helpful because it opens your eyes up to concepts that you may not be familiar with. And so you know, for me, you know, it starts with the title of my book, which is Permission to Feel, because we do have to give ourselves the permission to have these feelings. Like right now, you know, I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, I'm angry, I'm scared. Um, and that's the way I feel. And there's no taking those feelings away from me. Um, and you may be feeling the same or differently. Um, and that's okay I discussed, too. 
add disgust in there for me. All the things that you said, but then disgust. Yeah. And so for every teacher, for every family, like everyone's got these feelings that are there. And we can go through life ignoring them, denying them, suppressing them, repressing them, eating them, cutting them. I mean, the list goes on. Um, For things that are, you know, I want to say easy, you know, it's easy to deny. It's easy to eat your feelings. Um, and, but yet we know that those, you know, strategies don't lead to well-being and positive relationships and good decision-making and health. And so all the strategies that we need to learn, um, take effort, time, commitment, and they're different for everybody. I think one of the hardest things for people with regard to developing emotional intelligence skills is that unlike other concepts, there's no criterion of connect of correctness. Mm. So like what I need to regulate and what you need to regulate is what I need to regulate and what you need to regulate, you know, just because I think that, you know, going for a long walk or doing power yoga or working out or calling a friend are helpful. It doesn't mean that that's going to be helpful for you. Right. And so, you know, the second piece of my work, as you know, from reading is striving to help everyone become emotion scientists as opposed to emotion judges, right? Curious explorers of their feelings as opposed to harsh, critical judges. Yeah. Get granular and specific with their feelings to not just say, fine, okay, shit, you know, Um, you got to get specific, you know, is it apprehension or is it fear? You know, is it overwhelmed or is it anxiety? Is it stressed or is it too much pressure? And then obviously understand where those feelings are coming from. And then importantly, be in places, homes, schools, workplaces, churches, synagogues, wherever, where you can express those feelings openly and authentically, honestly, um, be heard, and then regulate them and then learn the strategies. I don't know about other cultures because I've lived in the U S my entire life. I feel that the U S the society of the U S has told us that we should not feel certain emotions, that we should be ashamed of, of certain emotions, certain thoughts that we have. And so we wear this mask. This is how, uh, this is socially acceptable for me to look and act this way. Mm -hmm. What's odd to me, is that while we shouldn't feel certain toxic emotions, enacting those emotions in a way that's very dramatic seems to be something that we gravitate towards. Like it's okay to lash out, but it's not okay to do it to someone's face or X, Y, Z. I just think it's a very interesting model we have here. I know you've spoken all around the world Do you find that other countries struggle as much with acknowledging their emotions and expressing their emotions the same way that we do? Or do you find some countries are potentially worse off with suppressing those emotions? I think it's the distribution, right? And, you know, there are cultural differences and then there are individual differences within those cultures. Um, But one thing I want to say, you know, just to some of the language that you just mentioned, like toxic emotions, I think 
I would move away from thinking that way, you know, that emotions are toxic and that some emotion, you know, that some emotions are toxic. I think the way I'd like to think about it is that when you experience certain emotions for a long time and they're really intense, they can become toxic on your system. Right. And I, I, that's what I, sorry, I'm I, sure didn't clarify. I meant to- the energy, the toxic energy, whenever it manifests. Yeah. All emotions are data. You need to acknowledge all right. of them. But yeah, yeah I was going towards and more. Some of them are not, you know, when you, you know, all emotions are there, you know, it's just that they're, they're experiences, you know, and certain ones you don't want to have for too long or for, or too intensely because they're going to take toll on your physical and mental health and relationships. That was one thing I noticed and I didn't even realize it. You know, you become used to that new normal. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with Bruce Cryer. He used to be the CEO of HeartMath, the HeartMath Institute. Uh-huh. And him and I um, were speaking one day and he was talking about, and he even writes in his book uh, about being a fish in the Hudson, you know, when it was all polluted, that's it. That's all they know. If you're in polluted waters, that's normal to you. It's not until you are in clear, pristine waters that you look at how toxic it was. Mm-hmm. And that was the same for me. Like I had all this anxiety. I would lash out at people. I knew what I was doing, but I didn't care. It made me feel good to make other people as miserable as mm-hmm. I was. And Later, when I tried to mask that and suppress it because I wasn't being accepted socially, then it started to manifest as panic attacks triggered out of nowhere. Like I was driving Mm -hmm. in Uptown Charlotte and my vision starts to go. I start to get tunnel vision. My breath starts to get shallow and I thought I was dying. And then it happened like every week just out of the blue. And I said, something's got to change. And that's really when I took a deep dive mm-hmm. self-development, but I think people think, and, you know, I tell people, I, I don't try to steer them away from medication because I was on medication for a while. I think it helped me get to a point where I could focus and be present and work on myself. But once I got there, I got off my anxiety medicine. I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always told you have, uh, a chemical imbalance, right? At 15 years old, I was put in anti-anxiety medicine. I wasn't sent to a therapist. I wasn't asked to, you know, regulate anything or taught how to be aware. I was just put on medicine because that was the quick fix. Yep. And I think there needs to be follow-ups to that medication to help you regulate that because our thoughts create that chemical imbalance sometimes, right? It's not... Mm-hmm. Like it's inherent, like I was told maybe for some people, yes, it is. But I think for the majority, and I want your input on this. I think for the majority, our environment and our thoughts have created that chemical imbalance. Yeah, I think it's so complex. And so the, um, you know, people in psychology have moved away from talking about nature and nurture the way we used to, you know, that, and, and just really, and to really understand, you know, that nurture shapes nature, right? Um, 
Meaning, you know, I think the best example of that is research that was done in Romania in orphanages, you know, where children who were neglected of social connection and touch and love, you know, um, were um, shorter than the average people. Mm. Um, and they had more, uh, their IQ uh, scores were significantly lower. Um, and it's not that they were born, you know, with low IQs or prone to be shorter. It was that we are creatures that need to be in relationship. We're born to be socially connected. And, um, and so that's the point about nurture shapes nature. And I think that applies to our psychology, you know, completely. You know, you can be prone to have depression or anxiety yeah. based on your chemical makeup, but its likelihood to be expressed, right, will be very different if you're born into, you know, a third world country where there's buildings being blown up in your backyard every day, you know, versus in a safe neighborhood, you know, with parents who love you and connect, you know, cuddle with you every day. So yeah. I, yeah, so that's the way I think about it. <laughs> yeah. So let's dive into your book. Sure. Um, let's start with how you got into your field because you've been practicing, you've been studying emotional intelligence for 25, a little over 25 years now. Is that right? Right. Um, so I'm 51, which is you know, has totally freaked me out, but that's another story for another day. Um, yeah. So it's about 25, well, formally 25 years, truthfully, you know, I started doing this work, you know, as a kid because of my uncle, who was my mentor at like 13. So I guess it could be almost like 38 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would account for those years. Because I think that's some of the most important years, right? When you're developing yourself, you learn so much more through that development than just through books. I mean, which are great, like you said, but it kind of takes that combination of the two. So um, I know that you're comfortable sharing this because I've heard you on other podcasts, but you know, obviously it's in your book, but can you share your upbringing and the reason that you titled your book permission to fill. Sure. Well, I mean, I had a complex childhood because um, both of my parents, uh, I'm, the, I'm the only product of my two parents. They each had children before they got married. Um, my father's children, I didn't really know. They lived in another state and my mother's children became my brothers who I lived with and grew up with. Um, but you know, the most you know, critical or influential, you know, experience was I was abused by a neighbor as a very young child um, that went on for years. And, you know, I never shared it. Uh, my parents didn't know it was happening. Um, and it was obviously horrific and painful, but yet, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, it happened for a long time. So there's a part of you as a kid when bad things are happening to you that are repeated, 
you start wondering, am I asking you for this? Like what's going, you know, you don't have that language as a kid, but you don't really understand like what, why is this happening? And why is it happening over and over again? And why is it, you know, when is it going to stop? And it's complicated. And so I never shared my feelings. I had strong feelings, even, you know, um, as I got older in school, I was bullied pretty badly. I had terrible bullying problems. Um, I didn't talk about that either. Um, and so you have all these feelings of self-hatred, fear, anxiety, stress, overwhelm, loneliness that are trapped inside of you. You know, and I had an eating disorder when I was an adolescent. I had, I had, I was, you know, quite overweight. Um, didn't engage in a lot of self-care, you know, not the fancy bubble bath self-care, but just like, you know, hygiene. And, um, and so, the, you know, this long story to just cut it short is that I realized as I was working on my book, you know, that I was robbed of my emotional life as a kid. And so I didn't have the permission to feel. I didn't have the permission to have, uh, you know, know what I was feeling to talk about my feelings or even learn how to deal with my feelings. Yeah. And how did your parents react to that? Well, when I finally disclosed my abuse, you know, all hell broke loose because, you know, my father was going to kill the neighbor. You know, my mother was going to have a nervous breakdown or did have a nervous breakdown. And at that point, my two older brothers were out of the house. So it was, you know, my mother and I, my older brothers had their own challenges. And so, you know, the, the neighbor was arrested and you would think, you know, that people on the street would be supportive of my disclosing, but he had relatives that lived in our street um, who were angry that we opened up this abuse, even though they finally, you know, acknowledged they had been abused too. Some of their own children were abused, which is, you know, crazy. Wow. Um, and then, of course, well, not of course, but um, my parents knew to get me into a psychologist, even a psychiatrist. Crazy as that might be, the psychiatrist who I saw was writing a book on molestation and decided to ask my parents if I would go on television with him when his book came out. And so at 12 or 13 years old, I was on public television oh, talking wow. about my experience, which was the worst thing to do for a child because then the schools found out about it. The kids in school found out about it. And, you know, basically that was, you know, that was the end for me in terms of, you know. And they gave you no say in the matter. They just kind of threw you up there like, Oh yeah. And to be honest, because, you know, I'm a precocious human being. I think that when the opportunity, I was like, yes, I'm going to do it. But like, you don't ask a 12 year old, you know, to do it. You just don't let them have the option because they don't know what's best for them in that situation. I mean, you know, and so that led to worse bullying. It led to people not wanting to play with me in school, parents telling their kids to stay away from me. And so it was rough, you know, really, really rough. Um, you know, I try, I've, I've dealt with it, you know, for a lot, a lot of years in therapy and building my program and, the work that I do 
but when I sit with it for too long of a period of time, it does, you know, it brings back that trauma, you know, and, um, and how often, you know, and I, I couldn't imagine being asked that same question over and over and over again, because I'm sure, like you said, you have to kind of be present and process that feeling, you know, and that's yeah. energy draining. Um, so how frequently do you disclose this? Because I know you are on a lot of podcasts and have a lot of interviews and do a lot of talks. Yeah. Well, I didn't disclose it publicly until I wrote my book. Um so I didn't, re- I mean, I, my brothers and my, obviously my family um, and a few close friends knew my story, but, you know, I just, for whatever reason, decided, you know, when I wrote my book, because people ask me all the time about my motivation, right? Like, why are you doing this work, Mark? And I, I would talk about my academics. I would talk about the bullying, but what, I wouldn't go, you know, deeper, you know, into my childhood in terms of that feeling robbed of my emotions and I just decided that I had to be true you know if I was going to do this I'm just going to go all the way um and I have to say it's been I felt I feel the healthiest psychologically of all I should say the year after I wrote my book I felt fabulous um the last year I felt like shit again but you know because I'm not you know the type that is really used to working at home and obviously the pandemic and systemic racism and politics have really taken a toll on all of us. But um, yeah, so I feel the reason why I feel it's important for me to talk about it is that, you know, objectively I'm in a very good place. You know, I've, I've reached, you know, some degree of success and I'm proud of that. Um, But I want to let people know that, you know, I don't come from this like privileged family where like daddy helped, you know, I had a silver spoon and it was hard work and it was deep work. Um, And it wasn't myself only. I had a million things that helped me get to where I'm at. Like my uncle Marvin, who was my hero, like studying the martial arts, you know, like getting into college and going to college and getting a graduate degree. And, you know, there's a lot of things that came together yeah um and my my concern you know is that those things aren't going to come together for a lot of people and that we need to make it more deliberate so tell me a little bit more about you know you said you don't feel like that's going to come together for a lot of people can you explain what you mean by that yeah i mean you know how many people are going to have parents you know that you know may not know what they're doing with emotions, but at least get you into therapy. Mm-hmm. Like they knew that I had to be, I had, to, they were smart enough to know, like get Mark help. Let's just not ignore this or deny this situation. You know, I was blessed. My uncle, my mother's brother, you know, who was my hero in life was writing a curriculum on feelings, you know, and practicing those, teaching me those words. And we had rich conversations around them. I was, you know, mesmerized by him. Martial arts, you know, I have a fifth degree black belt in a martial art called Hapkido. And, you know, like at 14 or so, when I went into martial arts, like my self-esteem was so low. But yet then all of a sudden I got my yellow belt and my blue belt and my red belt. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can block punches and I can, 
became a teacher of the martial arts, you know, and then college and then graduate school. You know, I've had a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And I've also taken advantage of the opportunities because one of the theories that I have is you don't know what you don't know until you see it. And so growing up in a lower middle-class suburban household with both, neither one of my parents had a college education. Like you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. You know, I remember the first time I was able to take a bus into New York city because my close relative, my cousin lived there, and I walked, you know, to her office and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, and then just even my first day teaching at Yale, you know, it was, um, just mind-blowing to me because to this kind of university for me was always like a foreign country yeah but now i've been in it for 18 years and you know it's it's it is the country i live in and so i just my my, my point here really is that my hope is that we can create systems in our schools and our homes to ensure that all kids get the emotion education that they need so that they can achieve their dreams. Definitely. Before we move on to how you're doing that with Wolver, mm. uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the influence your uncle Marvin had on you. Sure. Um, you know, being a CD student in school and now teaching and not just teaching, but being the director of the Center for Emotional Intelligence at Yale, what was that process like, you know, having those grades? What, what was your path into that? Did he well, help? I think, I think you? you know, not quite, you know, because he wasn't around that much. But what he, there were like, you know, there are like defining moments in your life. And so one of the defining moments in my life was when my uncle was going to graduate school and he did an IQ test on me. Mm-hmm. And I was, I scored much higher than I thought I would. Not that I even know what an IQ test score was, but even when he gave me the feedback and I remember thinking to myself, wow, like I do, I'm not as, I'm not dumb. I'm not a terrible student. I'm just, so honestly, that was my, as I reflect on that now as an adult, um, it's more proof of why emotional intelligence matters, right? Because I'm clearly, I wouldn't be in my job if I wasn't smart, right? Like I have to, you know, I'm not, this is, this is not a time for me to have hubris, but the, um, like it's hard work to run a center and you got to have complex problem solving skills and you got to learn how to write papers and blah, 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 blah. It takes, cognitive ability to do that and I'm lucky that I got it but it wasn't expressed you know for much much of my childhood it was it was dormant it was repressed it was buried um not for any other reason than the fact that my emotion system was amok right it was just a stressed out overwhelmed scared lonely you can't concentrate. It's hard to remember things. Yeah. Go figure. Yeah. Which is why it's so important. People that I still get a little peeved and I, I don't think many people mean anything by it, but when they call emotional intelligence, a soft skill, yeah. now it's an essential skill. And 
I, I often hear people say that, but I want to, when you're talking about how it affected, you know, your ability to concentrate and focus, mm-hmm. that reminded me of something that you talked about in the book. So you said that you've championed five areas where our feelings matter most. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about that because people don't realize that it affects our performance. It affects our connection and relationships. Mm-hmm. It affects our physical health. Um, it affects how we perceive the world around us, which I really think we're seeing today, how it can alter our reality. So would you talk about those, those areas where feelings matter most in our life? Yeah. You know, the first one I think I've spoken about because it's about learning and attention. I gave that example. I mean, uh, the second one is decision-making, you know, in terms of, you know, we like to think that we're rational creatures, you know, but emotions influence almost everything, you know, that we make choices about. From the college we attend to the clothes we wear to the partners we date. Um, What's interesting about that is that it happens mostly outside of conscious awareness. We're not aware that in the moment our feelings are influencing that. Relationships wise, you know, the way I like to think about it is that our brains are built to help us stay alive, you know, to thrive and survive. And so I'm looking at your facial expression right now and you look warm and friendly and you know, you're at ease. So that says, okay, Mark, like, this is safe. This is comfortable. You know, if you were like furrowing your eyebrows and, you know, you know, that your nose was kind of in that upward way and you're looking at you like you're crazy, you're growling, (laughs) um, you know, it would be like, oh shit, I'm in trouble here. Um, And so I think that we have to be aware of that in such that how we feel on the inside and how we perceive other people on the outside drives much of our interaction. Mm-hmm. The fourth, you know, mental and physical health, I mean, it's just obvious in terms of the more, like you were saying, stronger, unpleasant emotions without regulating them effectively becomes toxic and it influences your health and wellness. Creativity, performance. You know, Interestingly enough, um, most people, what I find in my research, don't achieve their dreams because they don't have the skills to deal with the strong emotions associated with the journey, the disappointment, the frustration, the overwhelm, the fear, etc. And so that's why, you know, that chapter in my book, chapter two, you know, I think is the, is the heart of the work because it, it just, it shows the evidence that Mark's opinion, it's all evidence for why emotions matter. And you've written what, a hundred plus papers? Is that mm-hmm. accurate to say? Probably about 150 or so mm-hmm. articles. Yep. That's, that's mind blowing to me. So in September, I get, yeah, the first I have a big team, remember they all, they help. that's true that's true um i started to go for my master's around the end of august early september 
and I started with like, uh, it was like an intro to research, right? And I was dissecting all of these research papers and having to do, you know, um, a review of all of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could not, you know, it's a different language. It is. Completely different language. And unfortunately, that same week that I started, six of my family members got COVID. Two of them got hospitalized and unfortunately passed away. So I dropped that semester and I'm kind of glad that I did looking back because I think that would have been too much for me to take on while, you know, doing my business too. It would have been emotionally overwhelming for me. Still something I want to do in the future. Sure. But um, it was an insight into how intense research is. So the fact that you've written so many papers, even with a team is a pretty amazing. Well, also I remember I've had, 20 something years doing this. So six or seven a year. Well, still I'm impressed personally. Appreciate that. <laughs> I know it becomes routine for you, but from an outsider looking in, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, so let's talk about roller. Cause I think sure. that is, that is extremely important. And this is what you're not only implementing this in school systems, you have what 2000, we're almost up to 3,000 now. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Now, and you're expanding out. Actually, you're in Charlotte, North Carolina? Yes. Yeah, so Charlotte, Mecklenburg, right? Yeah. Those schools have adopted ruler. Oh, my God. That's awesome. That is so cool. I'm super pumped now. I'm really excited. Okay, cool. So tell us about it. And you use this with executives, too. Like, it's not just school systems, right? You use this across the board. It's different because obviously, you know, curriculum is different than management, but um, it's the same skills, right? right. right. Uh, we have a company called OG Life Lab, OJI Life Lab, where we do training for companies um, and coaching for companies. And then Ruler is our school-based program that's built out of Yale. Um, you know, and the key, the key for this is something I said earlier, which is it's not ruler is not, you know, a lesson plan. It's not, you know, a Thursdays at three o'clock sitting in a circle talking about your feelings. It's a systemic approach, meaning that it's about how superintendents and principals use emotional intelligence to be better managers and build relationships with their teams and create safe learning and work environments. It's about how principals run schools. It's about how teachers teach and how students learn. And so that was a process. When I was working with my uncle back in 20 years ago, we built you know, a middle school program, but that failed because not everybody was Uncle Marvin. Right. And so a lot of the adults who were working, you know, with the program, they weren't comfortable with the words. They weren't comfortable with the lessons. They don't want to talk about anxiety and fear and despair. And so we realized that we had to work with the adults first. Yeah. And that really emotionally intelligent to teach emotional intelligence. to Exactly. You can't. Right. Yeah. And now it's a systemic model. So the four areas of ruler, you know, it's about, getting people's mindsets in the space of emotional intelligence. It's about developing the skills 
it's about culture and climate and policies. Um, and so that those four areas, mindset, skills, culture, climate, and policies. Yeah, that's amazing. And then you also have, um, and I see it behind you as well on the wall. Oh, my blue meter? Yeah. Yeah, the, the quadrants. Uh, and, and that's so important, especially managing our energy as well, right? Because we have energy drainers and we have energy renewers and we kind of have to balance that out. Mm-hmm. If we're depleted of our energy, like we're talking about before, how can you be present and be aware and regulate? Because that, t- that takes energy, you know? So you have to realize what renews your energy. And as you were saying before, what works for me may not work for you. I may need to go punch a punching bag and, you know, get that energy out that way by listening to heavy metal while someone else may need a bubble bath and some candles, you know, different for everyone. Yep. And so I think that's the hardest part of all the work, you know, emotion regulation, Mm -hmm. because like you're saying, it requires energy, it requires effort. Um, it requires, you know, for example, you know, I think I'm doing okay on this podcast today, but like I'm physically drained from yesterday. You know, like my, my, my energy is drained. I worked out this morning. I got up at 6.30 to do an hour workout. And so I feel like I'm glad I did that workout, but between the physical draining, not getting that sleep and then the workout, I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. And so um, I'm glad that you're keeping me, you know, engaged. If I were sitting by myself, I might be like in a coma or something. Um, and so, yes, and I'm just making the point here is that you, know, you do need a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And that means you've got to, that emotion regulation is not just about the cognitive stuff. Mm-hmm. And two, I feel like many of us treat our emotional energy the way we treat our devices. We wait until the battery's critical before we want to do something about it, before we want to find a way to charge right. it. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, I realized when I first started working in corporate that simple things, it doesn't have to be extravagant. Taking, you know, for me, it was a 10 minute walk, grabbing my book and just walking and reading. Sometimes just getting up to get a fresh cup of coffee those little things add up and people shouldn't dismiss that because just as small things drain your energy that run under your radar, small things can actually renew your energy. Um, That's why for me, you know, self-care oftentimes is a trigger because it looks as if it's only for people who have lots of money, you know, who go on vacations or get massages or bubble, you know, expensive bubble bath stuff. But self-care is like, for me, it's like shutting my computer down by nine o'clock at night, which is still too late. Um, It's in the middle of the day, closing my computer and taking a five minute walk outside and just looking at the sun or the sky. Yeah. And so I think we need to just educate people more on all the different aspects of emotion management. Mm-hmm. such that they can apply those aspects to their lives. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, it's unfortunate that people are so focused on what seems to be mainly negative and what someone else has, you know, there's so much envy, there's jealousy, there's all these things because social media portrays this very unrealistic Mm -hmm. view of each individual. And we only put out there what we want people to see for most people. Now, some people are very authentic, but for most of us, and I think that leads to more unpleasant emotions because we feel we're not measuring up and you can tell people that all day long, but you know, how do you get them to see that? How do you get them to truly, I feel like emotional intelligence, mindfulness, gratitude, all of these words are tossed around, but they're very shallow. Not many people take it very deep. Mm -hmm. How do you get people to survey their life and truly appreciate what they have? Because I can see one person say, oh, I'm grateful for this, this, this. And then the next day, they're just like losing it on social media. And then you find out later, they're extremely depressed. And again, while these emotions are normal to feel, or I wouldn't say normal is not the right word. Um, we, we feel these emotions, but it doesn't seem to be coherent with, with what they are saying and doing. Does that make sense? Does that make any sense with that? It does. Um, How do you get people to dive a little bit deeper is, is what I'm asking instead of putting on that mask to truly appreciate, to truly feel gratification, um, compassion. I think that's the hardest work, you know? So you're, 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 you're coming up against what I think is the, is is the problem is that we are programmed to want immediate gratification. And so because of that programming, we're looking for the immediate reward, which is why the extra alcoholic beverage, right? Mm -hmm. Is um, tempting, you know, it's why um, just watching television you know, as a distraction is tempting. Um, And so we've got to fight, you know, the immediate gratification thing. Yeah. And I think that's what the reason, the harder part is the long-term perspective taking, meaning that it's, it's goal setting. It's, and it's strategizing to achieve those goals over time. So for example, you know, like think about if you've ever been in a relationship that wasn't going well, you know, it's like a lot harder to have the difficult conversation, mm-hmm. right? Than it is to just break up, <laughs> Yeah. you know, or, or hold a grudge. Yeah. And so the, uh, but we're not taught to live with the discomfort. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. Um, for the listeners who are listening, they've, they've probably heard me tell this story or talk about this multiple times. So I apologize to them for the repetition, but it makes me think of a situation. I was volunteering at a conference here in Charlotte called EmpowerCon, and it was all about 
diversity and inclusion and bringing awareness. Um, and this, this gentleman, he was overhearing a conversation that they had the night before for some of the panelists and he decided that he wanted to come attend. And so we were in a discussion about uh, gender equality in the workplace. And one of the panelists had made a comment about older white men and how there needs to be more diversity, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the common conversation around that. And because he was an older white man, he personally took offense to that. Mm -hmm. So after the panelists got down, her and I were having a conversation and he walked up and was just kind of standing there, very uncomfortable feeling, right? Because he's like right up on us. You could tell he was eager to speak to her as well. And so she felt that discomfort. And so she turned and addressed him and he didn't seem angry at the time. He was just kind of standing there waiting to talk to her. And when she addressed him, he, he just lost it on her. Um, you said this, you said that blah, blah, blah. And she tried her best to be calm. No, sir. That is not how I meant it. This is what I meant. But he was already emotionally aroused. He was in no place to mm-hmm. rationalize. He was in his zone. He was, he was offended. So I saw that as a cool opportunity to put into practice all these things that I've been preaching and teaching. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was uncomfortable. My heart rate was out the roof. I could feel it like pounding in my chest, but I wanted to be in that discomfort and see what's going to happen if I come from a place of understanding and mm-hmm. compassion. So she finally was just tired of it. She just walked away. And so I came up to him and I, I was like, sir, um, I can tell you're really upset. Tell me, tell me what you're feeling. And so did you hear what she said? I said, well, I didn't hear that exact thing that you heard, but I understand how you could have interpreted it that way. And I never agreed with him, but I, I came from a place of understanding. Right. And I brought this guy like 20, 25 minutes, but he went from a level eight of rage down to a level two. And we had a conversation. He smiled. He shook my hand. And I said, wouldn't it be amazing if all of us came from a place of understanding? He was like, well, you didn't say those things. I said, no, I didn't say those things. But the difference is I listened, you know. Um, and it's just, it's amazing. It works, you know. It, it works. You can be in a very heated conversation and just listening to someone and understanding them first instead of convincing Mm -hmm. wonders, just absolute wonders. I always say the listener is the learner, right? Mm -hmm. And the listener is the leader. Um, And so the more you're listening, the better able you're going to be able to support people. And we Don't don't understand listening. That's the problem. We don't understand. You need to listen. Well, what does that mean? People don't understand what true listening means. They think it's being quiet and giving the physical awareness, like, oh yeah, let me give you the social cues that I'm listening. But in the meantime, I'm going to process my defenses and tell you how you're wrong, (laughs) you know? So, well, um, is there anything else before we kind of wrap up? I I really appreciated your time. Of course. Um, um, and I'm sorry that I'm a little distracted this morning. Uh, 
and tired. But I hope I, I gave you what I, I hope I gave you enough. Yes. Um, I appreciate it. The, um, no, I think we covered a lot. I just think that, you know, just like, you know, if you want to be a good writer, right? You have to, you know, I wrote 150 scholarly papers before I wrote my book. And I still feel, you know, like I'm not a good writer, like I need work and practice. Um, and so like, if you want to get good at dealing with your feelings, you got to give yourself the permission to have all your feelings and you've got to practice in real time, the strategies to regulate them and then learn from your mistakes and failures. Right. And not get into the habit of denying and repressing, but living with being with, you know, and apologizing, maybe forgiving, you know, and, um, and just get back on the saddle so that you can, you know, work through whatever emotional challenges you're having in the service of achieving your goals and dreams. Yeah. It's like that saying, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. But the more you do that, you expand that comfort zone. It really does expand because you're just, you're getting rid of all those fears, those narratives, those false narratives, typically that you've had about what's going to happen. It's going to end up this way. But what I've found is when I truly understand and just listen, I have never had a situation where it went sour and if they did project onto me, I realized this is projection. This is not a personal attack. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's another thing when you, when you're compassionate, you set the ego aside and realize it's not about me. This is their feeling. This is their emotion. And behind that emotion is an underlying need. And that's what I need to be curious about. That's when you put on your detective hat, right. And say, what can I learn from what they're telling me? What is behind this and help them figure it out too sometimes. Right. Um, so yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Mark, I greatly appreciate your time and it was a pleasure to have you on. Yes. A pleasure to have and, you. Uh, I look forward to seeing what your work does in the next few years, decades, and hopefully continues to do with ruler in the appreciate educational that. systems. Well, thank you so much.